Well, last week we dove into the book of Esther, and uh, we're calling it the hidden hand, seeing the providence of God in everything. And so as you're turning there, as Esther uh, chapter 1, let me begin this morning by sharing with you one of the most marvelous and mysterious instances of God's providence in the life of a man named William Cowper. Cowper was an 18th century English poet and hymn writer who throughout his lifetime experienced seasons of doubt and depression. In fact, he attempted suicide three times, which led to an 18-month stay in an insane asylum, during which time he began reading the Bible, and at the age of 33, he was converted to Christ. And yet he was still haunted by doubt and depression. And specifically, he battled with this overwhelming fear that God had forsaken him and that he'd been doomed to hell. Well, one night, he decided to commit suicide, even after he had become a believer. And the way he decided to do that was to drown himself. And so he called a a cab and told the driver to take him to the Thames River. And yet that night, there was a thick fog there in England, and it prevented the cabbie from finding the river, and after driving around lost for a while, he finally just stopped and let Cowper out. And to his surprise, Cowper found himself on his own doorstep, and he concluded that God had providentially sent that fog to keep him from killing himself. And that even in our blackest moments, God watches over us to preserve our lives. It may have been that incident that inspired Cowper to pen what many believe to be the most profound lyrics ever written on the subject of God's providence. It was the last hymn that he ever wrote, and we know it today as God moves in a mysterious way. This is how it goes. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be its flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I think that hymn brilliantly and, and beautifully summarizes the marvels and the mysteries of God's providence. Now, let me contrast that classic Christian hymn with a secular song, maybe some of you have heard. It was made popular by Bette Midler. It's called From a Distance, off her album entitled, of all things, Experience the Divine. It goes like this, from a distance the world looks blue and green and the snow-capped mountains white. From a distance the ocean meets the stream and the eagle takes to flight. From a distance there is harmony and it echoes through the land. It's the voice of hope, it's the voice of peace, it's the voice of every man. From a distance we all have enough and no one is in need and there are no guns, no bombs, no disease, no hungry mouths to feed. From a distance we are instruments marching in a common band, playing songs of hope, playing songs of peace. They're the songs of every man. From a distance, you look like my friend, even though we are at war. From a distance, I just cannot comprehend what all this fighting is for. From a distance, there is harmony, and it echoes through the land, and it's the hope of hopes, it's the love of loves, it's the heart of every man. And then she really gets down to what she's really talking about. And here's the chorus, and God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. Oh, God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a a distance. And I read that because it's the kind of sappy, sentimental stuff in which our world tries to find hope and peace. 
And yet it, it expresses, this song expresses the common misconception that many unbelievers have that if there is a God, he's aloof and totally uninvolved in human affairs. In their, man's God, in, in their eyes, God is like a, the proverbial watchmaker who designed this intricate clock and he wound it up and then stepped away and let it run by itself. Or you may have heard this illustration uh, that, that God set the world spinning like a top and then sat back to watch the laws of nature and other random forces determine what happens to it. So he's looking on lovingly, and he's pulling for us, but he's really powerless to do anything to help us. My question is, where's the hope and peace in that kind of thinking? How much more hope, how much more peace is there in being absolutely convinced that Everything that happens does so because God willed it to happen in the exact way that it happened. And this robust conviction is one of the things that sets us apart as Christians in a pagan world. James Montgomery Boyce began an article that he wrote on the providence of God with these words. He said, quote, there is probably no point at which the Christian doctrine of God comes more into conflict with contemporary worldviews than in the matter of God's providence. In similar fashion, Derek Thomas, who wrote that little booklet, What is Providence, that I recommended last week, he began with this sentence. He said, quote, few things distinguish Christian and secular worldviews with greater clarity than the doctrine of providence. And so both of these men were quick to point out that the doctrine of God's providence is diametrically opposed to the way that most people think and live in our world today. Non-Christians, even those who believe in God, they wrongly assume that that God is uninvolved in human affairs. He he takes a hands-off approach, if you will. And again, they think the world is controlled by natural laws and human choices, and they see history as this cyclical series of events. They see their lives as a series of random events caused by impersonal forces that they refer to as luck, uh, fate, coincidence. And yet at the same time, they view themselves as a master of their own destiny. And they think that they have the power in and of themselves to determine what happens to them. And they're so blinded by their own pride and their own power and their own plans and their own purposes that they fail to see that it is ultimately God's power and God's plans and purposes which are behind everything that happens in our world and in our lives. And yet this is the epitome of life as a pagan in a pagan world. And this is the exact setting in which God chose to put on an unforgettable display of his providence by raising up an orphan Jewish girl to be the queen of Persia in order to preserve his people from being annihilated. And so as the curtain opens on the drama of Esther here in chapter one, we are immediately plunged into the opulent and ostentatious world of the Persian palace. And the unknown author, we don't know exactly who wrote this, but we know it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so for no other reason, we just say the Spirit here painted a vivid backdrop for the fascinating events that are to follow in this book. And more than just giving us a geographical setting, the author established the philosophical and spiritual setting, I think, to accentuate God's ability to providentially work in a pagan culture through pagan people. And Persia was the epitome of pagan thinking and living. With all of its arrogance and all of its pride and all of its pettiness and its insecurity and wickedness and foolishness and just sheer ridiculousness that comes from saying and living like there's no God. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. And the king that we're introduced to here, Ahasuerus, is, is, reminds me a lot of the king in that Classic folktale, The Emperor's New Clothes. Remember that folktale? Hans Christian Andersen, kind of a children's story. 
about this arrogant king who, who loved to dress in, in opulent clothing and, and, and parade around showing off his wealth. And, and, uh, and so one day, two shysters showed up and said that they were these, uh, the most gifted tailors uh, in, in, the, in the known world and that they wanted to make him a special outfit. And uh, it was so special that, uh, and it was so fine that uh, if you weren't wise, right, you couldn't see it. Like anybody that said they couldn't see it, they, they were just, because they were stupid, they were ignorant. And so they, they uh, tricked him and they pretended to be making all these clothes and, and then they finally, the day came and they dressed him and uh, he didn't see anything as he looked in the mirror, and, uh, but he didn't want to admit that he was stupid and incompetent, right? Because if he couldn't see it, that's what they said he was going to be. And so he went out, he went, he went on with the program, and he went and paraded down Main Street, showing off his new set of clothes, and everyone was looking and applauding until this one honest little kid said, he doesn't have any clothes on. And everyone chuckled and realized that, you know, that was the truth. And yet the king continued walking and, you know, in that parade, kept on right on going, um, thinking that he was, uh, you know, dressed in all this grandeur. And that's what we see here um, in this chapter. And so I want to just um, show you as we go through here the, the pagan world, as it's described in all of its apparent glory, its apparent glory. And so first of all, we'll see the world's weight, the world's weight. And really what I mean by that is the world's power, right? We, we just sang a song about the weight of God's glory, and we talk about, um, you know, somebody throws their weight around. In other words, it's their power, their authority. They throw their weight around. And so, so this is the world's weight in verses one through three. Look at it with me. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. So Ahasuerus is the Hebrew translation of his Persian name, which was Xerxes, which means he who rules over men. And uh, Ahasuerus reigned as the king of Persia for 21 years from 486 to 465 BC. Uh, this book covers about 10 years uh, of, uh, of his life and, and, and his career, if you will. Um, this was probably written uh, sometime uh, in his later years, perhaps right before his death. Um, he was the great-grandson of Cyrus and the son of Darius. He's also mentioned in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. And so if you remember the history of the Jews, the Jews from the southern kingdom of Judah had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians in a series of attacks culminating in the Babylonian, or excuse me, in the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. And this is where, of course, remember Daniel and his buddies, all of those guys got hauled off to Babylon. And then Persia overthrew Babylon nearly 60 years later in 539 B.C. And the Persian king Cyrus the Great issued a decree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And they could rebuild the temple, they could rebuild the walls. That's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and really Esther kind of fits in between this, um, between Ezra and Nehemiah, and so Cyrus, after he made that decree and passed on, he was succeeded by Cambius, then Darius, and then Xerxes, a.k.a. Ahasuerus. That's who we're talking about here in, in uh, verse 1. Notice it says that he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, Again, the, the author here was emphasizing the vast expanse of, 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 of Hadjuerus' empire, which stretched from all the way from India to Ethiopia. 
And it says that he ruled from the palace complex, which was in Susa, which is in modern-day Iran. If you want to kind of get you know, uh, you know, the geography in your head. Um, his father, Darius, had rebuilt this city, which had been destroyed by the Assyrians, and it, it served as the, the winter home of the Persian monarch, monarchs. This was the, the, the royal palace, uh, really, where, where they would do all their business. And so um, it was, uh, the palace itself was built on a hill 120 feet above the city, again, to protect the king, but also to exalt his position, to remind everybody of how high and exalted he was. If you remember, Nehemiah served as the cupbearer to the king uh, in Susa after Ezra day, Ezra's day. We learn about that in Nehemiah chapter 1. But notice the mention of the leaders here, which makes it likely that this banquet corresponded to the great feast that Ahasuerus gave when he was planning to invade Greece, which again is not mentioned here. You have to uh, kind of um, cross-reference um, world history here. But the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, or Herodotus claimed Ahasuerus planned to invade Europe and reduce the whole earth into one empire. So this guy was a, a, an egomaniac, right? He wanted to conquer the entire world. Um, Herodotus described Ahasuerus as an ambitious, womanizing, cruel, ruthless leader. This is uh, giving us a little more insight into who this guy is that we're reading about. In fact, it's recorded that a storm destroyed a bridge that he had had commanded to be built across some strait, and because it collapsed, he ordered the engineers who constructed it to have their heads cut off. That's the kind of guy he was. In fact, inscriptions have been found in the excavation of Susa in which Ahasuerus referred to himself as the great king, the king of kings, the king of the world. And so here he is portrayed as the supreme pagan authority enthroned above his people. And in fact, his people actually worshipped him. And so this is the world's weight. The world's weight. But then look at the world's wealth. Verse 4. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet Violet linen held by cords of fine purple, linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of periphery, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. So three years into his reign, he decides to throw a party for himself that lasted 180 days. Okay, so we're talking about half a year. This is a six-month party to yourself where he entertained nobles and officials and military leaders. This, this was the who's who of Persia that got invited to this thing. They got a, they got a, 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 a ticket to this party. And, and really, banquets in those days were simply an attempt to, to draw attention to yourself, uh, to your wealth, to your power. This was uh, the way that uh, kings would impress people or show off. It was not uncommon for Persian kings to host 15,000 guests at a party at one time. In fact, there's one account of a Persian king who hosted a 10-day celebration for close to 70,000 guests. That's a big party. That's a big guest list. And that's an expensive party if you've got to pay for, to feed all those people. And notice... The, the pavement here, the, the mosaic that they walked on. They, they were walking and sitting on what others kept locked away as precious treasures. Yeah, they were just walking all over this, uh, these precious metals. No big deal, man. These were a dime a dozen around here. And at the end of this six-month spectacle, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, gave a, a second party lasting seven days for the ordinary people 
who lived inside the royal fortress. They weren't citizens of Susa. They were the people that were in the, the palace with him, but they weren't the leaders, right? They weren't the who's who, but he decided to throw a party for them as well. And again, this is just uh, showing his lavish wealth. Well, thirdly, we see the world's wine. The world's wine, verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. So the king was actually sanctioning here drunkenness. Um, the, the wine just flowed freely here. Um, there was an endless supply of it, it seems, and the guests could drink as much of it or as little of it as they wanted. Uh, there was no two wine goblets that were the same. And I think we could safely conclude that Ahasuerus had too much to drink, as we're going to see here in just a moment. Uh, he didn't heed the advice of King Lemuel's mother about how drinking and leading don't mix. In fact, we just read Proverbs 31, which was uh, the same context here. Proverbs 31, these are the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. And not only did he, she uh, describe the kind of woman he should look for, she also warned him about alcohol, strong drink. Proverbs 31, 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. She knew that leading and drinking don't go well together. So here's the man that ruled the world, but he couldn't rule himself. Proverbs has a few things to say about that. Proverbs 16, 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Proverbs 25, verse 28, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. So he couldn't control his own desires, and as we're going to see, he couldn't control his own passions, his anger. And so we go from the world's wine to the world's wantonness, wantonness. Notice verse 9, Esther, Esther chapter 1, verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the woman in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. By the way, that's all there is to say about Queen Vashti's little party on the side, her little side gig, right? Uh, the fact that there's only one verse about the party that she threw, I think, indicates that she was far less flamboyant, perhaps more noble, more modest than her egomaniac husband, who was like a proud peacock, strutting his you know, plume for everyone to see. He had put all of his wealth on display. And in the final day of this party, he decided to show off his most prized possession, his queen, his trophy wife, if you will. Look at verse 10, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, i.e. he was drunk, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zithar, and Sarkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. As it is, to this day, Persian custom required women to be veiled in public, and so the king was either asking his wife to degrade herself to satisfy his drunken whim, or, or worse, he was demanding some sort of lewd display. And it's interesting, when you read the commentaries, uh, some scholars suggest that he commanded her to come without her veil, 
which doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but others suggest he wanted her to come wearing nothing but her crown. In other words, pose or be deposed was the, was the invitation. One commentator wrote this, whatever the royal order was, the brave queen refused to obey it. Her beauty was her own and her husband's. It was not for open show among hundreds of half-drunken men. I think Vashti's example could serve as a good correction for some women, right, that don't seem to realize, hey, we don't need to be seeing your immodest dress, right? That's for your husband and your husband alone. And so she wanted to reserve her beauty uh, for her husband and not to show it off for every other man to, to, to enjoy. So there's a correction here, I think, for a, a very immodest culture, ladies, that you all live in and having a, a, a wife and a daughter that uh, you know, has a hard time finding clothes these days because of the the um, the culture in which we live. It, it's it, the clothes seem to be designed to reveal rather than to conceal, which is the opposite of why God invented clothes to begin with. Back in the garden, right? He he made clothes to conceal Adam and Eve's nakedness. Well, the world and Satan, who is the leader of this world, right? is all about the exact opposite, is to reveal uh, as much as possible. So there's a correction there, but there's also a, 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 a comfort. There's a comfort here, I think, for women. And I appreciate what Chuck Swindoll said in his little study guide on uh, this chapter. He said, Queen Vashti represents a good example of the limits of a wife's submission. I don't think there's any question in any of our minds, right, that we know the Bible clearly says in Ephesians chapter 5, right, that wives are to submit to their husbands uh, like, like the church submits to Christ. So the wife is the submissive helper, right, and the husband is the loving leader. We, we understand that. But it is not absolute and without limits. The woman does not give up her dignity as a human being where she become, when she becomes a wife. Neither should she allow her principles to be trodden underfoot by an unprincipled husband. There may be some of you that are married to an ungodly man. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to get there eventually. Uh, Peter anticipated the fact that there was going to be uh, godly women married to uh, ungodly men who are disobedient to the word. And how do you interact with them? How do you deal with that? Swindoll goes on to say, marriage does not give the husband license to pursue his basest sexual fantasies and neither does it enslave the wife to fulfill them. And again, we have to remember, men, that our authority that God has given us over our wives, over our families, over our children is a delegated authority. And ultimately, our wives and our children are accountable, not to us, but to, to God. And when we usurp that delegated authority, when we, we go beyond that, step beyond that, and ask them or require them to do something, right, that would be dishonoring to the Lord or disobedient to his word, they don't have to obey. They can appeal to a higher authority, and that is God and his word. And so obviously I'm reading between the lines here, but it seems that when Vashti realized that she was being treated as nothing more than an object of men's lusts, she refused to cooperate with her husband's drunken demands. And when she declined his invitation, naturally he felt embarrassed, maybe even humiliated, which led to him being enraged at being rebuffed by his wife in front of all of his buddies and all the fellow leaders and all the guests at the party. I mean, it didn't look good when the ruler and controller of the known world couldn't even control his wife. 
And so consequently, he had to do something to save both his ego and his reputation, and so he initiated a series of decisions based on his pride, based on his anger, and maybe most of all, based on his drunkenness. And so the rest of the chapter reveals the world's wisdom, the world's wisdom. Notice verse 13, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, Karshina and Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miras, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? In the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So rather than overlooking this offense and seeking to resolve the situation privately with his wife, which would have been what I would recommend if I was one of those guys sitting around the table with him, um, he chose instead to consult with, with the boys. Um, they were more than just boys. They were experts in the law and justice. And these were uh, like the men that we hear about in um, the book of Daniel, the wise men, the, the astrologers, the magicians who would give counsel to the king. And uh, of course... Being the guys uh, that they were, the red-blooded males that they were, right, they were quick to take his side. They wanted to please him. They were yes men. And they didn't offer legal advice since there was no law that had been broken, so they offered their personal opinion. And they ended up exaggerating the, the offense and its potential implications, they, 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 they were concerned about a revolt and that Vashti's lack of submission to her husband would lead uh, the way for other wives to rebel against their husbands and, and we're going to lose control. We've got to nip this thing in the butt. We've got we to make a strong statement here. And so that was their advice. Hey, if we don't act quickly, if we don't act decisively, if we don't act severely, then, then you might not have an empire. You're going to have an insurrection on your hands. We need to make an example out of Vashti so that we can keep all the other women in line. I mean, this is male chauvinism at its worst, okay? Just, just uh, putting your neck on, uh, or your, your, your foot on the neck of, your, uh, of the women in your life. Holding them down. Lording it over them. Controlling them. And notice what they go on to say here. Verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. And when the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. So, because she refused to come when she was called, you should ban her from your presence forever. Depose her, replace her. Force her to live her days out in the king's harem and never call for her, never acknowledge her ever again. And while you're at it, why don't you issue an edict 
that, by the way, could not be repealed. The laws of the Medes and the Persians were unalterable. You may remember in the book of Daniel when Darius uh, made the edict that whoever prayed to anyone else but him for that month would have to be thrown in the lion's den. And then when he found out that Daniel was caught praying to uh, God, he had no recourse. He couldn't change the law. Even though he was the king, it was in writing. It had been sealed. It was uh, unalterable. And so he had that restless night, right, where, where Daniel slept like a baby in the lion's den and Darius was tossing and turning wondering how his most trusted advisor was going to survive in the lion's den. Same culture, same context. And I, again, there's so many ironies here in the book of Esther, but how ironic this is that if, if he was trying to um, somehow protect his authority, I mean, this, was like shoot, this edict was like shooting himself in the whole foot, in his own foot, right? I mean, this, this was going to undermine his authority. I mean, he was afraid that the story of his inability to control his wife would spread throughout the kingdom, perhaps through gossip, but the edict ensured that everyone would hear the story. And again, the whole point was he was trying to inspire respect for husbands and, and also respect for himself. But surely he had the exact opposite effect. He was probably the laughingstock of the, of the whole empire with this edict. And I think that's really the point of this first chapter. In the same way that the emperor with the new clothes, the new clothes, which were no clothes, became a laughingstock to his people. And that's what Ahasuerus was. I thought of titling this sermon, The Marital Spat Heard Round the World. I mean, this, this private domestic situation became an international crisis, literally. Which again, just exposes the foolishness of life without God. There was an, just an inordinate amount of time and energy and resources wasted trying to resolve this petty situation. They, they, they made a mountain out of a molehill, as we say, Right? And one commentator said this, we find it hard to restrain a chuckle as Ahasuerus slams his sledgehammer down on a nut and misses. It's a great picture. He goes on to say this, the book of Esther satires, uh, 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 satirizes um, the empire. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Babylon Bee and, and how they use satire and and really sarcasm in many ways, right, to get their point across. Well, well, that's sort of what the, I think the guys at Babylon B would appreciate Esther chapter 1. Because that's what the author is doing here. He's satirizing the empire. He's mocking its claims to power and authority. In other words, he's making fun of it. He's showing its ridiculous side. And, and, he, and, and the, the commentator says, I think, well, he says, the book is meant to make us laugh. This is, this is intended to be laughable. And he said, for oppressed and powerless people, satire is a key weapon cutting the vaunted splendor of the empire down to size. That's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's presenting it. Look at this. And then he just cuts it down to size. He said, the book of Esther shows us that the great empire is not run by fearsome giants after all, but by petty bureaucrats. The ruling class of Persia is depict, depicted not as much as the Magnificent Seven, but more like Ahasuerus and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> I 
And then he goes on and says this, and I think this is so insightful. He said, Esther 1 reminds us not to take the power and the glory of this world too seriously. Sometimes we just have to laugh. And I don't know about you, that's not easy to do, especially in the times that we live. I think there's a lot of concern a lot of anxiety, perhaps, or fear or despair when we see what's going on in the, if you will, the, the, the power and the glory of uh, our country. But he's saying, hey, don't take it too seriously. In fact, sometimes you just need to laugh. You just need to laugh about it. And really, that's what this first chapter is all about. He, he, what the author was essentially saying is, hey, behold the king of Persia. In a, in a very satirical way, a very sarcastic way. Behold the king of Persia. And he intended his readers to be impressed by all the pomp and all the circumstance of Persia. But at the same time, he wanted us to realize that Ahasuerus, despite his self-perceived and self-proclaimed glory and power, that he was simply a pawn in God's hands to carry out his will. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Do you know that verse? That's a very encouraging verse, especially when you're um, in a situation where the person above you, your authority, whether he's a king, he's a boss, he's a president, he's your husband, he's your parent, right, your teacher, Their heart is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. And I think ultimately where this author is going, and of course we know the author is ultimately the Spirit of God. And so where's the Spirit of God taken this? Well, I think he's taken it to the fact that there's another king who is actually the king of kings. Not this joker, this clown, who proclaimed himself as the king of kings, the king of the known world. No, there there is another king. And he's working behind the scenes, directing everyone and everything. And he doesn't feel the need to flaunt his power and majesty like Ahasuerus with lavish, ostentatious displays. In fact, God is secure enough to show off in subtle, sagacious ways by using ordinary people and arranging ordinary events to achieve his purposes to advance his kingdom. And guess what? We're part of that kingdom. Amen? And we are subjects to that king. And this is so encouraging for us to remember as aliens and strangers in this world. And that's what we are, aren't we? We're aliens and strangers. We're living in the same kind of pagan culture as Esther and her fellow Jews were living in, where pagan leaders who have no regard for God and his word are making decisions that affect our lives. And you can fill in the blank. Biden, Kamala, Congress, maybe your unsaved husband, maybe your unsaved boss, maybe a coworker, or how about a drunk driver or a surgeon, a well-intended one. Kelly and I had the privilege of catching up with uh, our old college roommates that we were uh, both dating at the time. Kelly and I were dating. And uh, the guy that I was roommates was dating her roommate. And it was kind of a fun little connection there. And so we got together. But in the course of our conversation over brunch, we, they were talking about uh, some friends of theirs whose little girl, precious little girl, had gone into a, for a routine surgery. And uh, when they were in there, the surgeon accidentally right, um, struck an artery in her heart. And so she went, um, you know, flatlined for like 10, 15 minutes. 
that they tried to get her, tried to get her back. And she finally did. They finally did after 10, 15 minutes. But after that long, without breathing, right, without your heart beating, she has some irreparable, it seems, damage to her brain. And so this little girl who was just full of life and energy and just the joy of their hearts, right, went in for a routine surgery. And a a well-intended surgeon slipped. His hand slipped. And now their daughter may never be the same. But our friends told us that they, this couple, this mom and dad, have been an amazing testimony for Christ to those doctors and those nurses. Because you know that that whole hospital system is scrambling around knowing that they are in big trouble and there could be millions of dollars on the line and doctors' reputations, right? And so they're doing everything they could, bending over backwards and expecting them to sue them and to be angry and bitter. But they're not doing any of those things. They're saying we trust God's providence. We trust that God is in control. And even though we don't understand, there's no accidents. And we're going to trust him. And the pagans all around them are like, we've never seen anything like this. But that's what trusting in the providence of God will do for you. We're all tempted to live in fear and despair as we contemplate how the decisions and actions of pagans around us that don't acknowledge God, don't care about God, how those decisions and actions they make, they'll they'll impact us negatively and, and we'll live in fear and despair unless we're convinced that our king, our king, is providentially directing everything that these unsaved people do and say to bring about his will for our world and for our lives. Even the bad things, that pagans mean for evil, that that Satan means for evil. God means for what? Good in our lives. And so rather than being anxious and depressed, we can live with hope, we can live with confidence, knowing that our lives are ultimately in God's hands. And God takes care of his own, amen? God takes care of his own. And that's really the most simplest way to understand the providence of God is simply believing and trusting that God provides for his people. God protects his people. God preserves his people. And that's what we're gonna see here in this book, how God provided for his people and protected his people and preserved his people in the midst of a godless empire that some wanted nothing more than to see his people wiped out completely. That hasn't fully come to fruition in our country, but there are places in the world where that is the heart of the leaders, the pagans in charge of those countries. They would love nothing more than to see Christianity wiped off the face of the planet. And so they'll do anything they can to, to imprison Christians and, and kill Christians. But at the end of the day, the doctrine of God's providence is, is really a call for us to simply trust God. That's all it is. It's a call for us to trust God. And I hope as we go through uh, the remaining chapters of this book that, that your faith, your confidence, your hope in God's, how about this, in the sweetness of God's providence would just grow exponentially. And you would go to the next level in your uh, trust in the Lord and his provision and his protection uh, in your life. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for this time we've had in Esther this morning, and we confess that we are fearful saints at times, and you put this book in your word so that we could take fresh courage, especially when we're seeing clouds above our heads that look like they're going to pour down upon us, we know that ultimately there will be blessings and that behind your, what appears to be a frowning providence, you're, you're actually hiding a smiling face. In fact, Lord, I even right now want to pray for that dear couple that I don't even know their names, never even met them. But Lord, this from our vantage point appears to be a, a, a frowning providence. But we know that behind that, you're, you are hiding a smile. There's a, there's a smile. You're smiling in all of this. So continue to, to, to give that couple strength and stamina that they would find your grace sufficient for them and that your power would be perfected in, in their weakness and that you would use this situation to bring yourself great glory and to bring many to Christ and to conform them more to the image of Christ and we pray for that little girl that you would heal her you would strengthen her little body and somehow repair her little mind and that she would be able to enjoy life the way you intended and if not father we trust you that you have a higher purpose you have something better than what we think for that little girl and that family I pray that we would go to school on situations like that and learn from those types of scenarios so that if our time ever comes, Lord, that we'd be ready, we'd be prepared to respond in like manner in a way that would honor you, in a way that would be a bright light for Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.